It was indeed a great time at the men's retreat. I enjoyed the company of the men in our church. Come back encouraged. Not quite refreshed because, you know, there's not much sleep that happens, but that's okay. That's okay. You know, I, I have it on good authority that when a farmer examines his soil before planting, he looks for several things, three of them which are temperature, moisture, and cleanliness. Temperature, moisture, and cleanliness. The soil needs to be the right temperature when the seed is planted or the seed won't germinate. And the soil needs to have the right amount of moisture because if it's, if it's too wet, that's going to create problems while during the planting process. And finally, if the, so the soil needs to be clean from anything remaining from the previous year, or that could create problems for the new seed. Having the right conditions is vital for good soil. And this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. It would be very easy for me to just focus on the parable. And don't worry, I'm going to get there. We're going to talk about the parable that Jesus shares here. But first, I want to dive into the question, why did Jesus teach in parables? It's important that we understand why Jesus taught by way of parables. And if you look at the text, there's a few things that's going on here. We see Jesus teaching, and this time, we see, we see what he's teaching. A lot of times, as we've come through Mark so far, Mark will mention that Jesus is teaching, but won't tell us what he's teaching. This time, we get an in-depth study of what Jesus is teaching. So we see that, and then afterwards, we see that his followers ask him privately about this parable and why he teaches in parables. And then lastly, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. And like I said, it would be easy just to focus on the parable, but I want us to look first. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he do it that way? So we're going to look at the why and then we're going to look at the what. And you probably see this in your notes. It's broken up a little bit differently than usual. Why did Jesus teach in parables? And then we're going to look at this particular parable. So buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a wild ride. Here we go. First, why did Jesus teach in parables? I have two answers for you in your notes. And the first answer is this. Jesus taught in parables to reveal the kingdom of God. Jesus taught in parables to reveal the kingdom of God. Before we even get to the parable, jump down with me at verse 10. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything else is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus taught in parables to reveal the kingdom of God. He says to his followers, to you has been given the secret. Now that word secret, that refers to something that was previously hidden but is now revealed. Something that previously was hidden but is now revealed. Paul uses this same word in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles. You see, in the Old Testament, 
it was not understood by Israel that God was going to include the Gentiles into his plan of redemption. That was something hidden in the Old Testament, but was made revealed in the New Testament. So in a similar way, the parables reveal the mystery or the secrets of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' parables all center around one thing, the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? You might remember that we dealt with that back in chapter 1. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus gives his summary of his entire message, and it's this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Perhaps you remember we went over that a few weeks ago. But what is this kingdom of God? Well, I told you back in chapter 1, it would be best to understand the kingdom of God in three ways, spiritual, millennial, and eternal. See, first, the kingdom of God is spiritual. When Jesus came, he established the spiritual kingdom of God by preaching the good news of salvation, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, and those who turn from their sin and accept Jesus become a part of the spiritual kingdom of God. That's where we are right now. If you're looking at this in a historical way, right now we're in the spiritual kingdom of God. That's you and me. We are citizens. If you believe in Jesus, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, but... That's just phase one. Phase two happens when God defeats his enemies. He locks Satan up for a thousand years and establishes what we call the millennial reign. Now, there are some who disagree. Even some of you might disagree on how this plays out or what this looks like, and that's okay. We can disagree. But I believe there's a literal millennial kingdom where Jesus is coming, and he's going to set up his reign on earth. And that'll be phase two. And then we hit phase three. Phase three is when Satan's released for a short time. He gathers up the enemies of God. There's one last major battle. God wins, by the way. And then the eternal kingdom is set up. The eternal kingdom is set up forever and ever and ever. Now, again, you might disagree with some points on that, and that's okay. But that's what I think of when I think of the kingdom of God. So when you think of the kingdom of God, think already spiritual, but not yet physical. The kingdom of God is here in a spiritual sense, but it's coming in a physical sense. So Jesus arrives on the scene, and he inaugurates the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. So the parables give us glimpses into what the kingdom of God is, how it works, and how we get in. Jesus taught in parables to reveal the kingdom of God. Secondly, Jesus taught in parables to conceal the truth from those who reject him. Jesus taught in parables to conceal the truth from those who reject him. This is why the parables can kind of seem confusing. What's he talking about here? See, part of the purpose of the parables was to conceal the truth. He Partly he concealed the truth. And you can easily remember the purpose of the parables by remembering this. Parables both reveal and conceal. Parables both reveal and conceal. They reveal the kingdom of God. They conceal the truth from those who reject him. Let me read this again, verse 11. Then he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiving. To those receiving Jesus comes revelation. To those rejecting Jesus comes blindness. So you see in this text here, you have this inside-outside dynamic going on. Who's on the inside? 
in the context, it's those following Jesus. It's the 12, we talked about a couple weeks ago, but we know that there's more than just the 12 who's following Jesus, more disciples than just the 12 that we often associate. They're on the inside because they've accepted Jesus, they're following him, they get to know the secret of the kingdom of God, and those on the outside are those who reject him, namely the scribes. Quite possibly in a broader sense, the crowds. Crowds came mostly for his miracles, not necessarily for him. But definitely, specifically, the scribes. You see, it's no accident that chapter 4 comes right after Jesus' confrontation with his own family and with the scribes. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's rejected. They call him crazy. They call him a liar. Now, the scribes, if you think about it, they should have been on the inside. No one knew the word of God better than the scribes. They should have been on the inside, but because they rejected Jesus, they are now on the outside. The tables have turned. Those who should have been on the inside have rejected Jesus. Those who naturally would have been on the outside because they didn't have as much exposure to the word are now on the inside because they've accepted Jesus. Look again at verse 12. Jesus says, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. See, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And in that passage, the Lord is telling Isaiah that his ministry to the people of Israel is going to have a hardening effect on the people. In Isaiah's day, he preached the word to the people, and they responded by being hardened against his message. And they got to the point where their consciences were so seared, they refused to believe so long that eventually they could not respond to Isaiah's teaching. And so what Jesus is saying by quoting Isaiah 6 is that same kind of rejection, specifically among the scribes, is being practiced in Jesus' day. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching, but they refuse to perceive. They refuse to understand because they've hardened their hearts against Jesus. As a result, God has hidden the truth of the kingdom to them. God has hardened their hearts so they now can't understand. That's why it says there, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You might be saying, is this saying that God won't allow them to turn and be forgiven? Now, there's some debate on this, but I believe, yes, that's what it's saying. And believe it or not, that actually drives with, with the rest of Scripture. Scripture teaches that God hardens hearts that are continually rejecting him. And this is a difficult truth for us to swallow. I understand that this morning. But the evidence is in Scripture. We see it with Pharaoh during the plagues of Egypt. Paul actually speaks of this in Romans 9, 14 to 18. He speaks of God hardening the hearts. And let me read that now. You can follow along on the screen. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Again, I understand this is a hard truth to swallow. But God will harden a heart if it continually refuses him. He will conceal the truth as he did with the scribes. And our natural tendency might be to question God. Why would he do that? But we have to remember he is sovereign and we are not. And rather than question God, take this as a warning not to reject the message of the gospel. Continual rejection eventually results in an inability to turn toward God. Now, we don't know when someone's crossed that line. We don't know that. We are not privy to that information. And you, like me, might be concerned about people in your life who you love, who you know continue to reject Jesus. Don't stop living the gospel in front of them. Don't stop preaching the gospel in front of them. We don't know what that line is. Take comfort in that God is sovereign and we are not. You worry about your responsibility to preach the gospel. You let God take care of the rest. But that would be two reasons why Jesus teaches in parables. Parables reveal and parables conceal. They are judgment to those on the outside, the scribes and partially the crowd, but they are instruction to those on the inside, his followers and his disciples. So with that in mind, with the why in mind, I want to turn now to the actual parable Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 4. So join me back at the top of the chapter, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell on good soil. And produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, last week we looked at three responses we could have to Jesus' statement about being God. Three ways we could respond to Jesus himself. This week we're looking at four ways we can respond to Jesus' message. His message about the kingdom of God. Mark sets up the scene. Jesus is teaching. He Once again, he's by the sea. We're not sure when he got back to the sea. We left him at Simon's house last week. But he gets back to the sea. And again, just like a couple of weeks ago, where he was going to get in a boat if he needed to for safety, there's a boat here. But this time, rather than escaping the crowds, he uses the boat to distance himself from the land in order to teach. Now, why would he do that? There's probably a reason of, of again, being... being um, pushed in by the crowd like it was a couple weeks ago. But you know, there's a practical reason why he would do this. Acoustics. Sound amplifies over water. You may have experienced that. When you speak from a lake, well, Jesus speaking from a lake, his voice would have carried over the water onto the shore, making it easier for them to hear him. And a similar effect happens when you're standing uphill, talking downhill. In fact, this happened to me once. I was downhill from my grandfather one time, he was probably a quarter mile away or more, and he was shouting to me, and I could hear him just fine. But when I shouted back to him up here, uphill, he couldn't hear me at all. 
And that's one reason why he's probably out on this boat for acoustics. And it says in verse 2 that he was teaching them many things in parables. And now we, now we briefly talked about parables. Just to, just to remind you, a parable is a story or a riddle or even a simile to illustrate a point. And it's important to know that Jesus didn't create parables. He wasn't the inventor of teaching with parables. Rabbis taught in parables at the time. Now, the rabbis of the day, they would teach kind of a more of, more of a down-to-earth style parable. They would say things in a way that listeners readily understood. They would give figures of speech. That would be considered a parable. If I said to you something like, you know, that's killing two birds with one stone, you would understand what I mean is I'm knocking out two things at the same time. And that's kind of the idea behind the typical parable that the typical rabbi would say. Sometimes they were more elaborate, but the common person would easily understand what the rabbi was saying. Unlike Jesus, his parables, as we talked about, were confusing, which points us to the fact that we require an open heart to really understand what he's saying. This is why the first thing that he says in verse 3 is, listen. Listen. Parables require us to listen. Jesus calls his hearers to listen up. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 4, is full of expressions urging people to listen. It's here in verse 3. It's again in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's repeated again in verse 24 and in verse 33. The implication is simple. Listen. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen with an open heart. He who listens to Jesus' words just might actually come to receiving him as Lord. Now let's dig into this actual parable. Look at verse 3. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. Actually, I'm sorry. I've already read that. Let me just explain a little bit more. We looked at the four soils here. This is what Jesus is saying to the crowd. And we're told he taught them many things in parables. Now, the point of the parable, the point of this parable, has to do with the soils. When we're reading this parable, remember, it's about the parable. I'm sorry, it's about the soils. What is the reaction of the soil when the seed falls on it? That's what we're dealing with. And he gives us four possibilities. The first one, the first soil is is the hard ground. This soil is a path where people regularly walk on it, and it's become hardened. The seed can't even penetrate the soil, so it just lays on top. And the birds come down, and they eat it. What is the result of the seed coming into contact with this soil? There is no result. Nothing happens. The next soil is the rocky soil. Now, Israel is known for places of, of being a rocky climate with, with a thin layer of topsoil on top of bedrock. So there's no place place for the roots to properly grow. So the plant springs up, but with no root, it gets no moisture. And no moisture, the sun comes out, it dies. The result, no root, the plant dies. The third soil is the thorny soil. And this soil may have looked good at first, but it's infested with thorns. And maybe those thorns haven't even popped up yet, so you can't even see it. And as the plant grows, so does the thorns, and the thorns suck the moisture. They suck the nutrients out of the soil, and the plant is choked. The result, it yielded no grain. The parable is about the soils. And we have three here whose results are no result, no root, no fruit. But lastly, Jesus talks about this good soil. 
this rich, healthy soil where seed falls, develops a proper root system, and provides a good yield. Jesus said the yield was 30, 60, or 100-fold. Now, it's guessed that the average crops back then would have yielded six to eight-fold. And if you don't know, fold here is for every seed planted, six to eight seeds were harvested. So when Jesus says the folds here were 30, 60, or 100, that is miraculous. And then he concludes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the parable. That's what the crowds heard. We've dealt with Jesus' disciples coming to him. Now jump down to verse 13 because I want to talk about how Jesus expounds on his own teaching. Look at verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, before we dive into what I'm calling the heart soils of this parable, look at verse 13 real quick. He says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? Now, what did he mean by that? How will you understand all parables? What does that mean? This, see, this parable is not just about soil. It's not about dirt. It's about human hearts. The parable is about those who reject or accept Jesus. The parable that follows in the parables that we'll get to next week that follow in Mark chapter 4, they focus in more detail on those who accept Jesus and how the kingdom of God shapes and changes their lives. So what Jesus is saying in verse 13 is if you understand this parable, the other parables are going to fall into place. So what's the meaning of the parable? Here we go. Four heart soils. Look at verse 14. The sower sows the word. The sower is Jesus, of course, who came and preached the gospel, who preached the word. By extension, it's also anyone, us today, who proclaimed the gospel. And just as the sower sows, Jesus teaches. And he teaches, of course, the gospel. The gospel is the message that, if it's accepted, brings one into the kingdom of God. This is a parable about those who get in or those who do not get in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to preach the gospel. Now, remember our definition of gospel? The gospel is the message from God about God. Remember that? I want to add something to that. The gospel is the message from God about God that leads to salvation. The gospel is the message from God about God that leads to salvation. Jesus is the sower who sows the word, which is the gospel. Let's look at the first three heart soils. Look at verse 15 with me. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown to them. 
The first heart soil is this, a hard heart. First heart soil in your notes is a hard heart. The seed in verse 4 that fell on the hardened path represents the good news that lands on hard hearts. It doesn't even penetrate. Jesus could have been easily referring to the scribes who, because of their hard-heartedness, refused to accept Jesus even when faced with the obviousness of his miracles. Jesus tells us that the birds in verse 4 are a representation of Satan. Satan comes and takes away the word. Now, how does he do that? Honestly, Satan can use anything and everything to take away the word. During the time of the Pharisees, for instance, Satan used the law. He used God's own word as a stumbling block. They were so blind by their religious duties and their self-righteousness, they failed to see the Messiah when he was right in front of them. You know, in our day, Satan could use any number of things. He could use our own dreams and goals. He can use power. You name it. He could use our circumstances to take away the gospel. I don't think it matters to Satan how the word is taken away, just that it's taken away. If a person turns to a life of crime, that's fine with Satan. Just don't turn to God. If a person tries to be really good and moral, I think that's fine to Satan. Just don't listen to God. How the message is taken away doesn't really matter so long as it is taken away to Satan. But you know, this applies not only to the unbelieving hard heart, this applies to the believer as well. Anytime you know what God's word says on an issue in your life and you refuse to follow it, that's the same type of hard-hearted response that's described here. You know, in my early life, I'm just going to be real with you all, okay? I had a real problem with lying. Didn't take much for me to lie about something. And I knew it was wrong. And I was a Christian. But it didn't really bother me. What was that? It was an evidence of a hard heart in that area of my life. And I thank God that he broke through that hardness in my heart. And there are a number of ways that Christians can know the truth of God's word and yet refuse to follow it. You know, I know God's word says this, but I'm going to do it anyway, or I'm not going to do what I should. Let me just urge you to be careful. Don't let your heart get hardened against what the word says. It will drive a wedge between you and Jesus. The next heart soil is a shallow heart. This is the rocky ground. Verse 16 reads, Jesus is still speaking. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receives it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This soil represents hearts of people who it says receive God's word, and the text even says with joy. There's an instant response toward the message, but what happens? They have no roots. What does that mean? It means that their interest in the gospel, their interest in this message is somehow surface-related. It's not based on a relationship with Jesus. What's it based on? Maybe this, they sensed the energy of the church and they just got excited. Maybe they liked the music. Maybe they liked the programs. Maybe they, they liked what they heard. Maybe they came in expecting this is going to do something for me. 
but they had no real connection with Jesus Christ. So when things get tough, the scripture tells us, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they're out. Like, yeah, this is not what I signed up for. Being in ministry, I have to tell you that I've seen people come. I've seen people get excited about church and then after a time, walk away. And maybe following Christ got too difficult. Maybe the church wasn't what they expected. Maybe they were disappointed about something. Whatever the reason, they walked away. But again, just like the first response, Christians can have a similar response. Those who do have a relationship with Christ can have shallow hearts. And one way this can happen, this can happen in our small groups. A shallow heart is one that doesn't go very deep when it's time for breakout, when it's time to share. They live in the shallow and they don't want people to see the depths of what's going on in their lives and how they could be leaning on their brothers and sisters for prayer and support. There are many ways that Christians can be shallow in the sense that they don't go beyond a certain point, whatever that point is. They don't let people get beyond a certain point in their lives or they let fear dominate their heart. They're afraid to go beyond a certain point. They're afraid to listen to God beyond a certain point. Maybe they're afraid of what God's going to ask them to do. Maybe they're afraid of what other people can, will say about them. Can I share a truth with you? Following God can be a scary thing. But he calls us to be faithful. And let me say that with the scary comes blessing. With the scary comes blessing. As we let God go deeper in our lives, the depth of his love is revealed to us more and more, and our love for him grows. So don't let fear keep you from faithfulness. The third soil is a distracted heart. This was the thorny soil. This was the soil that looked good but was infested with thorns or weeds. Jesus' parable tells us that the seed fell among the soil and grew along with the thorns, and the thorns soaked up the nutrients and choked them. Verse 18 reads, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This soil represents those who hear the word, and perhaps there's even an interest in the things of God, but they are choked by things like the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Again, there's no fruit. People who are exposed to the gospel then distracted, could be distracted, like Jesus says, by the cares of this world. There's too much to do. There's so much pulling at my attention. I'll get to God later. What if later never comes? Other distractions, the deceitfulness of riches, of riches. You know, no matter how many times that we may hear, even from secular sources, money can't buy happiness, people still believe it can. Many people have been distracted from the gospel, from true wealth, let me say, in favor of the almighty dollar. The last distraction Jesus gives is the desire for other things. You know, years ago, I was leaving, le leading a Harvest Students night, and I asked this question to the teens. I said, why are we so easily distracted by the world? 
someone in that group said, because the world offers a lot of cool stuff. And they're right. On this side of heaven, the world seems to offer a lot of cool stuff. Things like education even, opportunity, a great career, things like family, things like wealth, things like possessions, things like technology, things like crazy fun experiences. None of these are necessarily bad. But what Jesus is saying is that these things distract from what's truly important, a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's so easy to gravitate toward what the world offers because, let's be honest, it's so tangible. I can grasp wealth. I can grasp the latest technological thing. I can go and have some kind of crazy experience. Another reason it's so easy to gravitate to the world is because it offers quick gratification. Let me be honest. Waiting on Christ to gratify my life is difficult when there's this thing that I can go to and instantly get gratification. And this is true about the people who come and hear a message but then turn away because of the cares and the distractions of the world. But this is also true with Christians. Once we become Christians, the distracted heart is still an issue. To this day, the Lord is revealing things in my heart that are distracting me from what I need most. I need God to continually do heart surgery to clear away the distractions so my heart can be truly his. Let me challenge you. Take some time this week to get serious about what distracts you from the Lord. Pray that through and see what he reveals to you. And then let me encourage you, take steps to give it over to him. The result is deeper peace and a deeper relationship with him. It takes time but it's worth it. Now, if the story stopped there, that'd be pretty discouraging. But praise God, there's one more soil to consider. Look with me at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The last heart soil is a submissive heart. The submissive heart receives the message of God's word. It has the right conditions for God's word to penetrate, germinate, and cultivate. This is the heart that's been softened to receive his truth. It's been enriched so the roots can grow down deep, and it's been cleared of any distractions so that the sole focus is the Lord Jesus. This is the heart that receives the message of the gospel and truly changes. Now, that happens at conversion, yes, when a person first comes to faith in Jesus, they are this good soil that receives the gospel. But as anyone who's been a Christian for any number of years will tell you, this process of God continually cultivating a heart is lifelong. We don't always have this good soil, in other words. Our hearts are not always as good and rich as they should be toward the gospel. You can have a heart submissive to the gospel message, but then it can grow hard. It can be shallow. It can get distracted. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's even possible. What I am saying is that the Christian can drift. 
having a submissive heart, that good, rich soil is where we want to live. But so often our hearts shift to the other three soils. To keep your heart in a state of good, rich soil, you need to submit to what you truly need, which is Jesus Christ. You need to cultivate that relationship with him. Just like a farmer who treats his soil so that it's the right temperature, has the right amount of moisture, and is clear from anything old or dead. We need to cultivate our hearts to keep them soft, to keep them deep, and to keep them distraction-free. And do you know the best way? Actually, let me correct that. Do you know the only way to do that? is to go back to the gospel. We just sang about it. The Lamb of God in my place. Go back to the verse that says it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Go back to that truth that I am horribly wicked, but I am fervently cherished by my Heavenly Father. That I am incredibly evil beyond imagination, but I am passionately beloved by Him who made me. Rehearse those truths over and over and over, and your heart can't help but be properly cultivated maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior let me just ask you why is that which of the three heart soils that rejected him best describes you it's time to do some digging if you don't know Jesus Christ and I I don't mean know of Jesus Christ. I mean if you don't intimately know him as a true friend, come talk to me. In just a few minutes, I'll be standing right down here. Come talk to me. I'd like to explain more about what it means to become a Christian. Don't wait. Come. Pray with me. Jesus, the great sower, you came and sowed the word. You came and proclaimed the message that allows entry into your kingdom. God, soften our hearts, even as Christians, soften our hearts, bring depth in our relationship with you. Clear us of the distractions that choke out the peace we so long for. Meet each one of us here today. Do a work of cultivation in our hearts today. Help us be submissive to your gentle work. And God, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you formed this plan to bring us out of death into life. God, I do pray if anyone in this room doesn't know you, give them the courage to come and receive you today. God, be praised and glorified we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.